This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Biden administration has proposed a new rule for federal contractors. It wants them to report their greenhouse gas emission levels, financial risks, and what the proposals call science-based emission reduction targets. For how one industry views this proposed rule, we turn to the Federal Council for the Associated General Contractors of America, Jordan Howard. Mr. Howard, good to have you on. Thank you, Tom. Builders, constructors, I haven't seen yet a front-end loader that operates on batteries. So what's your reaction to this rule? What do you think it means? What's the impact on the industry going to be? If listeners aren't aware of this rule, they, they should be. They should pay attention. This is uh, it's one of those proposed rules that's gotten every industry, including construction, to pay attention. It's, it's almost like Section 889 or CMMC or the Federal Contractors Vaccine Mandate. It is practically a go, no-go decision that'll really impact contractors' ability to even bid on federal work. So it's quite a significant change, as you said. And would it particularly affect construction companies, I would think, because they're so energy intensive just by the act of digging a hole in the ground and building a building or even remodeling, which the government does a lot of also. Yeah, absolutely. You know, F-35s are amazing, but, you know, they have to have a hangar and they also have to, well, some of them have to have a a runway as well. So, you know, construction really is key to not only our national defense, but, you know, even just our security when it comes to levees or any kind of natural disasters as well. But you're absolutely right. You know, construction is energy intensive for a reason. It's going to be difficult to see how this is going to be implemented in a consistent basis. Construction, as you know, can uh, one day, someone could be working on a military base in Guam, and the next day, a levy down in New Orleans. So it certainly is an energy-intensive business, but it's also uh, quite dominated by small businesses, which this rule does impact. And just on the reporting requirement of what the greenhouse gases are, so-called greenhouse gases are, that sounds like an administrative burden. Is that one of the problems with it, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And even in the proposed rule, it's quite interesting how much of an impact it's expecting to have. So just on small businesses alone, the proposed rule expects over $100 million just the initial year for small businesses to comply. And after that, about $62.5 million uh, in subsequent uh, years. So this is certainly going to be a huge impact on top of all the other numerous rules, regulations, reporting requirements that are coming down the pike. That $100 million then is basically labor hours in order to affect the compliance of just reporting? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's quite broad the way that the proposed rule is calculating that. There's not a lot of information on how much it's going to cost the government to comply as well to, to figure out this rule. There's a lot of unknowns here, and so I suspect that that number is quite low on the estimate. And that idea of a science-based emissions reduction standard, delving deep into it, what does the industry feel that actually means? I think of, you kind of touch on it right there. You know, what does it mean? And I think that gives a lot of room for interpretation from uh, contracting officers and other federal agencies that are going to be involved in this. And so what does that mean? It leads to more uncertainty for federal contractors and construction as well. It's uh, certainly going to be more of a risk. It's going to cost businesses more. It's going to expose them to you know, potential false claims and other uh, consequences for filing this. So in addition to just the upfront costs, you also have that unknown cost with the increased risk. And by the way, is the industry, as an industry, looking at, I don't know what they might be, but lower 
energy-intensive ways to get construction done. I mean, construction itself is a thousand different activities. You could be tiling a bathroom or you could be digging a you know, 10-acre hole in the ground. Very different ideas. Is that something the industry is pursuing or thinking about? Absolutely. You know, some companies approach this from basically wanting to become more green. Other companies are taking these initiatives just to save costs. So you can imagine there's a big effort among these companies to address fuel usage. So if you look at idling vehicles or just the cost of gas, moving this very heavy equipment, there's both of a practical standpoint as well as um, some companies are doing it because they think it's the right move. I guess you could get a front-end loader that's battery-powered. It would run for three minutes and you know maybe get a couple of, couple of shovelfuls done. <laughs> We're speaking with Jordan Howard. He's counsel for Federal Construction and Regulatory Affairs at the Associated General Contractors of America. And so so what will be the commenting strategy? What are they telling you is the timeline for this? And are you trying to get your members to comment? And what do you advise them to say to the administration on ways of maybe making this rule more palatable? Yeah, absolutely. AGC is going to comment on this on behalf of our more than 27,000 member firms. We are the largest and oldest association representing the construction industry. So we certainly will be encouraging not only our members, but our friends in other industries. But you can imagine what we're going to talk about. We're going to ask for more risk-based approach uh, in the federal market. We're going to ask for more flexibility, set some boundaries on these reporting requirements. It's quite broad on how far and how much. It's just unclear exactly everything that we need to do. And then another thing that's interesting about the proposed rule is just the disconnect it has with small businesses. And so it kind of creates its new categories. They call it significant contractors and major contractors. And so what's what's a significant and major contractor? Some folks may be hearing that for the first time. And I know, um, at least in the regulatory world, that that's somewhat of a new term. But the proposed rule defines a significant contractor as uh, any contractor who's had between $7.5 million and $50 million contract obligations from the federal government the prior year. And then a major is any entity that has more than 50 million contract obligations. And I, and I say obligations, I kind of emphasize that word specifically because that's not how the Small Business Administration rates and categorizes small businesses. It's based off revenue. So just having a uh, $50 million contract, you may only make $20,000 on that, but it doesn't matter. And it's quite interesting, the timing as well, because just this week, SBA came out and released an interim final rule that's basically increasing the size standards, adjusting for inflation for small businesses. So just one quick example. So a lot of federal construction contractors are classified under heavy and civil engineering construction. And previously that was $39.5 million. And now they've bumped that up to $45 million. So you see this kind of disconnect where the administration is essentially calling small businesses major contractors that are going to have to do these very extensive complying and, and reporting requirements, while SBA is sort of moving in, in the other direction of saying, well, we, you know, we're raising the threshold. So there is that certain disconnect that's uh, quite curious and confusing. Yes, and as you point out, obligation is only mildly associated with revenue in a particular year, especially for multi-year types of efforts, such as a major construction or civil works project, I guess. And is it fair to say that the major companies that really are major in the industry, the signs you see on skylines in cities, those do have legal and compliance departments. So is it your sense that this rule could fall cost-wise disproportionately on smaller 
businesses, you know, actual small businesses in the construction and building trades. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, with the new rules and requirements that are coming out all the time, it's becoming more and more expensive for small businesses to participate in the federal market. And if the goal of the administration is to increase small business participation, especially small disadvantaged businesses, this is not going to help. Jordan Howard is counsel for federal construction and regulatory affairs at the Associated General Contractors of America. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more about the rule at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement, 
And I will say, I think it would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, 
I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs, how, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups, you might get this experience. But really, where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First. Always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, 
If you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.